And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so, Marty sent me a reminder this week. It says, just a reminder, you are scheduled to lead Sunday school, October 20, covering God's knowledge. Oh, my. Just typing that overwhelms me. Praying as you prepare, praying also for safe return from Lake City. I could have used a little bit of Marty's humility. Because when, when I read the email originally, I thought, God's knowledge, no big deal. Um, and, uh, yeah, I could have used some humility in that fact. Because I have to tell you that though I have worked very hard on this, uh, I come here rather unprepared. Um, there are no slides today, which should tell you how unprepared I am. I'm the slide king, of course. And that <laughs> uh, but uh, we will trudge through what we have learned, and uh, hopefully some of it will be helpful to you. Um, also, uh, for the first time, I actually, because I missed several Sundays, I actually had to listen to some Sunday schools on tape and discovered that one problem with our tapes is, is if somebody makes a comment in the audience and the speaker does not repeat that comment, it goes absolutely, it is absolutely and completely unhelpful. And last week, uh, somebody said something at, right at the beginning of Blake's uh, talk. And Blake said, okay, let's bow in prayer, we're done. So whatever was said must have been pretty profound. I have no idea. So anyway, say what? So for those who might be listening on the tape, I believe uh, James just said, well, you should have ended it. So uh, anyway, and that is exactly why I'm bringing the topic up. I will forget because, you know, I'll be kind of locked in on what it said. If somebody will just raise their hand and say, would you repeat that question or comment so that we can get it on the tape? I think that would be good. Okay, so the topic today is God's knowledge. If I had my slides, of course, I would be putting up the table that we've been looking at that's been presented by both Seth and uh, Blake. If you'll recall, at, on the right-hand side of the table, we have our perspectival uh, categories, which are class participation, what are our perspective? This is nice because we don't have our slides, and so now we must actually use our brains. No, well, actually, yes, she is right. So she asked, "Am I talking about the triad?" Yes, that's one: covenantal presence, authority, and control. Okay. So, um, and why are they called perspectival? This is this. That's right. Okay. It's looking at the same thing, the same topic, the same subject from different perspectives. So if we take something like God's goodness, we can look at it from. <laughs> Cheyenne, what the heck? This is her first day, and look at her. She's training, of all things. Okay, so for those of you on the, uh, listening on the tape, Cheyenne just put a slide that I did not do up on the wall here. Okay, yes. All right, so we're looking at the same subject, the same topic, uh, from um, different perspectives. So we're looking, and, and those Three perspectives, authority, control, and presence, all fall under the heading of lordship. Okay? So for frame, 
The doctrine of God is in one word, his lordship. And while, I don't know, you know, better minds might dispute with that in some sense, I have to say that I find that emphasis incredibly helpful in my contemplation of all of these ideas. God is the Lord. And if we don't get anything but that, God is the Lord. He is Lord of His creation. He is Lord over all of His creation. He is Lord over me. If that's the only thing we walk away from with a, with a deep understanding and appreciation from all of this heavy stuff that we've been doing, but, uh, um, we will have gained something valuable, truly valuable. So you realize how long we've been in, the, uh, in this book, and just so you'll know, this is where we are. So we're just barely a little over halfway. This book by frame is just, I mean, packed, <laughs> I have to say, with information. Okay, so back to our table. We have the perspectival categories on the right-hand side. I'll bet you leave it to Cheyenne. She'll find the table here in a sec. Um, and then across the top, we have three different categories of attributes. And those categories are goodness, knowledge, and power. All right? So what category have you guys covered so far? Goodness. Goodness. That's right. Okay, can some of y'all list some of the topics that, uh, some of the attributes that are covered under goodness? Okay, that's, yes, goodness. Okay. <laughs> oh, come on, Dennis, you can come up with something else. What else? Grace, love, patience, compassion, mercy, I heard. Did I hear mercy? Jealousy, wrath, righteousness. Would you normally, of your own, put wrath under goodness? Okay. <laughs> All right, so today, yes, sir. Dennis, Dennis makes the comment that the reason, the, the reason why wrath is actually put under goodness is because, because it, wrath ties closely with God's justice. If God is not just, and if God does not bring, bring about justice, for which his wrath, his hatred of sin is required, then his goodness is impaired. All right? Because he has not, because he has not made, the, made the world just. Now, that's, a, that's actually a huge concept. It, it was the underpinning of Immanuel Kant's argument for God. Basically, if, I, don't, we, we, I don't want to go very far into this, but Immanuel Kant pretty much did away with all of the, the classical arguments for God. And then he comes back around and makes his argument, and he makes his argument on the basis of justice. Every man and woman has a sense of justice. Every one of us knows when, our, when, when someone has wronged us. And we all feel it deeply, okay? Why?
Where does that come from? What is the basis for that? Was Immanuel Kant's argument. There can only be some, the only basis for that is if there's somebody or some being who can make things just. Okay, that's not our subject today. All right, so we're going to start talking about God's knowledge, the, the second uh, column in our table. And under knowledge, we have speech. And then I'm going to, and he should have, I feel like, added a couple of, of qualifiers to that. There is speech to himself and speech to his creation. Okay, and we're going to talk about those two. We're also going to talk about incomprehensibility. No, we're not. We're going to, we, will, we will allude to it, but we're not going to actually talk about that. The next topic we will be talking about will be truth. Okay? And uh, we will also talk about knowledge uh, itself, his wisdom, and his mind, if we get that far. Okay? So, speech. How many of you would normally make speech an attribute of God? Say why? He is a speaking God. Is that a, is, I'm sorry? He communicates. So, so if we're, if we're talking about communication or the ability, the ability to, to, make himself known in some way, is, is that an attribute? Is that an attribute or is that an ability? Or are abilities attributes? Okay, the question back to me was, is love, an, is, is love, is it not both an attribute and an ability? An ability to have love towards somebody. Okay, yes, but uh, love is an intent of the heart. Is speech an intent? Of the heart, it expresses. It can express an intent, but is it? Speech is what? Speech is, I'm speaking. How is that working? How is that working? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm. You're what? Right. I think. Okay. So the comment was that the heavens. We have the verse that says the heavens declare His glory. And declare is seemingly a. a you know, we typically associate with speech. And yet we, we cannot know God's actual will unless he somehow tells us. And so God has made, his, made us such that we can, that, that that means is through language. Spoken language. Therefore, it must be an attribute of God, that this is, that this is possible. And that is, an, uh, it, to, to some degree, frame, a bit of Frame's argument. We are able to speak, we use speech, because why? We are made in the image of God. All right? So... If you stop and you think about how, how, then suddenly this capability, this capacity becomes all the more profound. All right? God, there is something a little bit different. Well, there is an, I guess there is a human analogy as well. But when you think of speak, what's, what the, when I started reading that, the first thing that popped in my what's the first thing that pops into your mind? He spoke everything into existence. The first thing that popped into my mind was, and God said, let there be, and there was. So, in, in our, in, in, and you know, when, sometimes when we speak, our speech must have other vehicles in order to make something happen. And, and, and in fact, there were two other persons of the Godhead involved in creation. The Father spoke, Spirit moved, it was the means, 
and Christ performed, the Son performed, okay? But, and so it took it, all three, it took all three of the Godhead to do creation. But God's words are very often associated with action. Action plus words gives reality with God. Um, in the Bible, God's, God's, God's uh, speech is living. We see that in Hebrews 4.12. In fact, um, let's, let's do that. Let, let's look at a couple of passages real quick just to have in our head. Um, as we are talking about this stuff. So let's go to Hebrews 4. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't necessarily immediately have thought of this in terms of dealing with God's knowledge, but we're going to go to Hebrews 4. I believe it's 12 and 13. Yes. Okay. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. So think about this in terms of what God, not only, so I have always read this in terms of um, what the Word of God does to me. All right? But think about this on the, the flip side. What does God have to know? in order for this to be true. Okay? For the Word of God is living active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Think about what that verse is saying about the knowledge of God. Okay. Um, it's active in his, his word is active in judgment. Uh, it's, yes. And it's active in salvation. Okay, his word, his word begin, salvation begins with, with an eternal decree. All right? It begins with God declaring that he is going to save a people. He's going to bring a people to himself. And then he creates and he begins the process all flowing out of an eternal decree and, a dec and, an, and an eternal covenant between the three members of the Godhead, three persons of the Godhead. Okay. How are we saved? What's the good Calvinistic answer? I'm sorry? By grace, chosen. chosen. What's what's what is what is it? How, how what what? Okay. How how do? I'm sorry. We we hear what? What do we call it? We hear the gospel and. Well, okay. That justification is the effectual call. Yeah, not a one of you is a good Calvinist. That's right. <laughs> well, and they're right about that too, aren't they? Some people say there are no good Calvinists, and that's true. That is definitely true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so um, now none of this is very... 
very sharp. But, but, but let's think about this for a minute. We're talking about speech. We have, we have language. And, and, and by the way, just so you know, I, you know, I hadn't thought about it, and he calls it speech. You guys do realize that in the 20th century, most of much of philosophical conversation, at least the first half of it, was, on the, was in the realm of the philosophy of language. And even today, there are philosophers, that's, that's, they spend their whole careers, and all they deal with is language. <clears throat> Why? Well, this is another thing a little bit like justice. Where does that capacity come from? In the entire evol evolutionary, and don't hear me, don't be ascribing that to me necessarily, but in, in terms of our secular scientific culture, there are certain inexplicable things. There's this whole evolutionary order, and yet only one being seemingly has the capacity of language. Where did that capacity come from? Okay, and so there's a lot of work being done in arguing or determining how that can happen in an evolutionary paradigm. Okay? So, we don't need to worry about that. We're not in an evolutionary paradigm. We are in a paradigm in which we have a creator. A creator who speaks to himself. Who, who can communicate between the persons of the Godhead and has always done so. It is an attribute of his nature. And he has extended that attribute to his creation, to his humans. All right? And he speaks to us. Now, where was I going? Um, okay, yes. So... Again, we don't need to get real crazy about this, but just uh, uh, this, this perspectival tool that, that um, Frame has given us. You can think about this. You, you have words. So, so what we have is we have reality. Okay, reality would be the center sub subject of our perspectival thing that we're looking at. And one way of understanding reality especially as, as revealed in Scripture, is you have words and action and knowledge. And they come together to make reality. So reality for a Christian can be looked at from the standpoint of God's words. Reality can be looked at from the standpoint of God's action. And reality can be looked at from the standpoint of God's knowledge and what he knows. It's a pretty helpful tool in some ways. Okay. Um, so in his defense, he talks about, um, he actually does... Uh, and he, he, he takes some time to actually defend his argument that speech is an attribute. I think we've already established for ourselves that we're comfortable with this notion. Uh, some of the things, though, that he points out is he, um, he points out that one of the things that God uses to, to indicate, to differentiate himself from the idols is what? The idols are dumb. They do not speak. He, the true God, does. <laughs> okay, the comment was they also don't do anything. And I, I guess that's true. All right, that's true. Okay, so going back to what we talked about earlier, they have no actions, they have no words. Yes, sir? <laughs> or knowledge. Okay. All right. Um, it, it is... And I just mentioned the, how God speaks within the Godhead. Okay, that um, basically the Father speaks. 
The Son is the word that he speaks, and the Spirit is the breath that carries the speech or the word to the hearer. Um, God's speech has, in Scripture, God's speech has divine qualities. It's said to be righteous in Psalms 19.7, faithfulness, Psalms 119.86, wonderfulness, Psalms 119.142. It is true, John 17.17, 17. it is eternal, Psalms 119.89 or 160. It has omnipotence. Um, Genesis eighteen fourteen, Luke one thirty seven, it is perfect. Psalms one Psalms nineteen. God's word is also an object of our what? Um, he actually goes on. Frame goes on to make the point: God's word is God. And it is therefore his self-expression in, 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 in the very highest sense, okay? In, um, and in John, in John 1, 1, John 1, 1, in fact, let's, let's go look, let's go read John 1, 1. Be, okay, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. All right. In the beginning, it alludes, it points back to what? John begins his book with... Well, the start of time, yes. But he begins his book with the very same words that, that Moses began the Pentateuch. All right? So John is specifically pointing back to that moment in time, in creation, all right? In the beginning was the word. All right, so given what we've said about speech, all right, think about what's going on here, all right? In the end, Christ is the supreme expression of God's speech. All right, let's move on to truth. So... Um, let me make sure I can get this, express this right. This um, chapter, this, this, these verses I just read, that word, word, is in the Greek, what? Logos. Logos. Okay. Um, logos. All right. When when John is speaking of logos, what is he trying to express? I mean, what what what? I'm sorry. In Greek, didn't it mean the source of all knowledge and order and that sort of thing? Okay, the source of all neural. Okay, so in the Greek, it, you know, actually, I didn't look that up, so I, I'm, we're going to trust that you know. Okay, this is art, everybody. <laughs> and art said that logos means the source of all knowledge. And what was it? Order. order. And order, okay? But John actually picked it up and used it for something very specific. And he applied logos to, who, who is he talking about here? Christ. Okay, he's talking about Christ, and he's talking about Christ in a very particular way. What, what, what is he trying to communicate when he applies Logos to Christ? Starts with an R. Starts with an R. Revelation. Christ 
is the supreme revelation. All right? Okay. Hebrews 1 1. All right. 1 3 3. Actually, yes, we. So, in, in, we'll another confession here. The way I had hoped to start this is I had hoped to get 12 passages. And the first thing we were going to do is we were going to read 12 passages that deals with this topic of the knowledge of God. You, so you guys have been cheated today, and I'm sorry. This could have been a much better lesson and much more, I think, much more meaningful. Nevertheless, there's some. once you bring all these together and look at them, it's just amazing. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. Every now and then, God's Word just, that's so cool, <laughs> you know, kind of feeling. Okay, so anyway, but I didn't get time to get that pulled together. So we're doing, we're doing this. All right, so um, Revelation, Logos. Okay, so, so in terms of, so we're talking about truth, getting back to the topic here, truth. Okay, so there's two aspects of truth in terms of what we care about. There is Revelation, all right, Logos, and there's Aletheia. which is truth, okay? My daughter was not named that by accident. Subsequently, I've always relied on her never to lie to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm 65. I can live in denial. Okay. <laughs> Uh, here we go. Um, so, yeah, so, so within the case of, in the case of where we're at, what is important is, is that to us, is to know that the Logos is Aletheia, Revelation is true. Okay? Now, if we stop and we think about what has God done to assure us that His revelation is true? He gave us His only Son. I would not do that. I'm going to just, I think, be honest. I, I live in denial, but I think I can avoid denial here. If you can't believe me, that's your problem. But I'm not giving you my son. Okay? But that's not what God did. And it would be better for me to give my son. My son's not perfect. You know, my son deserves to die, as we all do. God gave a son that did not deserve to die. God gave a son that did not deserve to have to come and live in time and space, as he did. And a son, the son, came willingly lovingly, purposefully, so that we may know that God's revelation is true. Fair enough? Okay. So there are three kinds of truth. I'm sorry. Yeah, three kinds of truth. There is metaphysical there is logic. Uh, this is by this. This is Herman Herman Bav, Bavinick who basically makes these distinct came up with these distinctions, and he called them metaphysical, logical, and ethical. And logical is a little bit confusing. Think of logical as and so, so it's kind of interesting. So Frank 
as I would rather call it epistemological. Well, that's not very helpful either. <laughs> Think of it as propositional, all right? Statements of fact, okay, is logical, all right? So there's metaphysical. So what would metaphysical be? What, we've, we've talked about metaphysics here now enough that we ought to be able to kind of, kind of uh, come up with what is metaphysical. Metaphysical truth deals with what? Say, what's that? Things outside the physical. Okay, meta does not mean outside. Okay. Spiritual reality. Okay, so, yeah, so um, metaphysical would be, would be, so meta, the metaphysical deals with the being, right? So it talks about the very nature of things. So metaphysical truth is the truth about things as they actually are, okay? Propositional truth, simple statements of fact, okay? A person makes a statement, okay? I'll make a statement. The Houston Astros are going to win the pennant for a second time in three years. Is that statement true? We don't know yet, do we? That's a statement about the future, which we're going to, if we have time, we'll come up to. Okay, but it is a, it is a, it is a statement, and then we, can, then we can spend time debating the veracity of the statement of whether the statement is true or false, right? Okay, and then there's ethical. Ethical truth... Um, Or basically, basically is truth in which uh, actions, living that flow out of the first two types of truth. Okay? So, God calls us as Christians to live lives that are, and it's actually stated in 1 John, you, we are called to live lives that are true. Okay? So it is metaphysical truth, propositional truth, lived. All right. What do we have here? Another perspectival view of truth. Okay, we can look at truth from a metaphysical perspective. We can look at truth from a propositional perspective. We can look at truth from a present or existential or lived perspective. Okay. All right. So now that we've talked about truth, let's talk about truth with, in terms of God. Um, Guess the first question: Does God know Himself truly? Okay, we say yes. When we say yes to that, and when we ask that question, and we we say yes to that, what are we saying when we say He knows Himself truly? We're saying He knows Himself as He is. That's one. Two, He knows Himself exhaustively. He knows everything down to the last minute detail about himself as it is or as he is. So he knows himself metaphysically. God's truth from a propositional standpoint, we've talked about it, haven't we? It is his speech. Everything that God says, is it true? Cool, huh? I think it's cool. I like the way these things, that this viewpoint, this way of viewing these things, um, the symmetry of it, I think, and the uh, 
well, I don't know. I, I have never really, I, you know, you've, you, you always kind of, we always kind of, in thinking at times, we kind of get close to the edges of these, some of these things. But this idea of God's, you know, speech and his words and being an attribute that expresses, tells us so much about him and that it can be true and that it is expressed supremely in Jesus. I mean, what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing. What, a, what a something that only God could do. Okay, so now we come to the topic at hand, knowledge. Anybody want to try to take and stab at a definition for knowledge? I'll just give you a minute to try to formulate a definition in your head that you would feel comfortable speaking out loud. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, you know, I kind of like, you know, I don't know. And it'd be really long and everything. So the philosophical definition of knowledge is three words, believe it or not. And it is justified, true belief. Knowledge is justified, true belief. Now, this is, this is a philosophical definition. How many of those words is not a scriptural concept. Justified, true belief. Well, so that's the problem. Okay, so the question, the question is, what justified? What, how is that word being used? There is no consistence. There is no consensus on what is meant by justified. And thus the problem with the definition, the philosophical definition of knowledge and why knowledge is itself a big topic in philosophy. Okay? But, but, but justified actually deals with verified, the veracity of the knowledge. Okay, so the knowledge has to be true. How do you know it's true? It has to be justified. Okay? Actualized would be a way of expressing the fact that it is real. Okay, yes. But, but, but the problem, now you can see the problem, right? What is, what, 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 upon what grounds do we justify a proposition to determine if it is true knowledge today? Human reason. I'm sorry? Human reason. Human reason. Is that... <laughs> Tom's shaking his head, Art. <laughs> Empirical, evidence. Empirical evidence. Okay. Of course, Barclay would tell you that you don't have empirical evidence. You can't know that everything is coming to you, that's coming to you through your senses, actually tells you the reality of what you see. So, again, all of these come into play. They're all part of the conversation surrounding how do we know what is true. Tom alludes to a, the scientific method of determining how, what things are and how and what they're how they are constituted. Okay. And science, you know, does pretty well in that realm. But again, what is its ground? So perception, experience, and reason. Okay, okay. Human perception, experience, and reason. Okay, are you speaking in terms of secularly today? That is the ground. All three of which are subjective. When we put the word human upon on, in front of it, we make it subjective. Is that right? So it's a subjective ground. Okay. It's not a comfortable place to be, I don't think. For the Christian, is that the answer? Is that the ground for truth? 
No. Tom's shaking his head again. <laughs> I actually found out that it's helpful to do some of these things for the sake of the talk, the, the recording. Nevertheless, and, and, and it's right. It is, that is not our, the ground for truth for us, is it? What is the ground for truth for us? The, the, the problem that Barclay led to the complete, you know, this is back in the 18th century. The, he, I mean, he led to pure, it became pure subjectivity in terms of, of empiricism, became pure subjectivity because they, there, there was no way for us to tell ourselves that what we are feeling, what we are seeing, what we are hearing, what we are tasting is what is actually out there. Because why? Because it comes through vehicles that we don't understand. What is taste? What is it? It is not the food upon our tongue. That is not taste. That's what initiates taste. But that gets turned into some sort of chemical signal that gets translated into our brain and turned into something meaningful in our mind. Okay? How do we know that's accurate? How do we know? And God made us this way. God is true. Therefore, we can trust that what He has made is true. And what we are sensing, what we are seeing, it is as it is. We trust that because we have a God who is true. That is the ground. Okay? And that's important. Okay, so Blake's comment is, is that what we're talking about here is, is actually what began when the, when the Western worldview became, came to understand this principle about God and the trustworthiness of His creation, that things like universities began, that scientific inquiry really took off, that, um, you know, and, and it was because there was a fundamental belief that we were working to understand and God's thoughts and God's decrees and God's actions. And these things are important and we need to know them as best we can. Okay? So, it is, so okay. And that's now going away. And we are living on, and this is, a, this is from Barr. We are living on the vapor trails you listened to Mueller this week. The vapor trails of Christianity. So we don't. We're out of time. Actually, we probably and we've covered half the sub, half, half the chapter. Um, if you want to know the rest, I encourage you to get your book and read it. It's a great chapter. Um, much of the the, the, the second half is God's uh, knowledge of the future and dealing with the open theists. So he actually has a, he actually, part of the chapter is him taking time to respond to notions set forth by the open theists. Um, libertarian freedom. Have we touched on that? Can anybody tell me what I mean by libertarian freedom? Okay, so um, either we've not done a very good job as teachers or you guys are being really bad students. So, are, so Rob, are you, are you just taking a stab in, in, in lieu of nobody answering? <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much. At least you took the risk and, and, and you're not that far off. Okay? So, so, the Calvinist, in terms of man's freedom, the Calvinist does. Calvinist actually refrains from using freedom, right? And he st instead he speaks of human. Sorry. Bondage. Bondage. Will bondage. bondage. Okay. Yes, we do speak of that. But in terms of 
God's sovereignty and man's freedom, the Calvinist will not very often use the word freedom. He will use the word responsibility. Okay? And he's doing so because he recognizes that man's free expression is not actually truly free. Man lives in a, in a world where there are abilities, and he has abilities, but there are also preventers. All right? And, and those preventers, I think realistically speaking, those preventers are such that man, a human being, is not always actually free to do what he would do because there are preventers that prevent it. All right. So, in, so basically, libertarian. So I'm out of time. So I'm gonna let me give you the definition of libertarian freedom, and you'll then understand why he's taking up the subject. Libertarian freedom is the view that, in order for it to be logically consistent, God is sovereign. But, in order for God to be just, man must be absolutely and completely free to choose. He's able to choose without regard to abilities, libertarian freedom. Okay? That is the freedom that the open theists want to argue man must have in order for God to be just. Okay, and he spends a good deal of time dealing with that. All right, we got we to quit. So I want to thank you very much. Good participation, guys. Appreciate it very much.